The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 3rd of February. Professor Christine McCartney will provide a general update on boosters, rapid antigen tests, school immunization, COVID fatigue, and deciphering the conflicting messages and answering patient frequently asked questions. Hello everyone and happy 2022 albeit a bit of a complicated one. Um, It's my pleasure to give you an update today on COVID-19 vaccines, on treatment and on the disease itself. And before I get started, I'd very much like to acknowledge um, any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, listening today and pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across our vast nation as the the first peoples of, of the land. So I'm going to talk about COVID-19 boosters, hopefully answer some of your questions there, um, about the newly available uh, COVID vaccine by Novavax, schools, COVID and vaccination for children, a little bit on rapid antigen tests and just a little bit on therapies at the end. So let's talk about boosters. And I know you know the principles. Um, Basically, we have, you know, one or two primary doses Uh, we get antibody, we have a T-cell immune response in addition to that humoral immune response. And then always, typically, we see waning. Now, we see waning often of circulating antibody. So that's what you can see depicted in the graph here, that circulating antibody um, will go down over time. And then, of course, we hope that our memory response will kick in. But I I recently read a great article, um, and and I'll show it to you in another slide, the link, about vaccines, as well as sometimes infection, if that has occurred for you or does occur for your patients. It's really like a training school for our immune system. So, you know, a first dose might be getting off to kindy, the second dose might be, you know, um, getting into primary school, um, you know, the third dose might be going to high school. Really, we build on our education of our immune system. So the fact that we need boosters is not at all surprising. Think about when you're a child, you're born and you've never seen a virus before. We give sequential vaccines to children, we give boosters to children because we're introducing their immune system and training it um, to a new pathogen to protect against a new pathogen. So we have here then a booster coming along. And the real question for us now with also a new variant will be how long is that booster going to last for? Um, will the protection be sustained or transient? Um, and of course, right now, we're seeing a situation where we know that we're bringing boosters forward. We've got a new variant um, that is somewhat escaping our vaccine protection. And that's where the blue line is here that we're seeing a number of breakthrough infections from the Omicron variant in Australia um, now in early 2022, as much of the world is also seeing. And the world is awash with Omicron. So this map shows you now um, which countries uh, have Omicron and those that aren't on the map almost certainly do have Omicron. Anyway, we're seeing a number of countries that have been COVID free um, now with COVID cases for the first time in the entire pandemic. Some of our 
Pacific Island um, country neighbours. And in Australia, I think, uh, you know, we're probably travelling along at about 98% Omicron in some of the states, such as New South Wales, who have um, a reasonable, you know, um, sample of, of cases that they've been able to, to identify this variant in. Okay, um, so firstly, uh, because the Omicron variant has a number of mutations, it is not as good a fit, really, um, for our vaccine-induced antibody and immune response as were the earlier versions of the virus. Remember, of course, that the vaccines that we're using are still developed all based on the very original spike protein or whole virus, but we're not using those in Australia, but the very original spike protein of the ancestral strain. So now Omicron has moved sufficiently away from that that we're seeing less um, strong protection. In this UK analysis, which is updated um, every couple of weeks, it's really interesting reading if you jump on this link, you can see that two doses of AstraZeneca effectiveness um, straight after being having those two doses, protections are only around 40 to 45-50% to against um, any symptomatic infection, but goes down to around no effect at 20 weeks. And this is where the breakthrough is happening. Likewise, the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, starting with protection against Omicron, if you've just been vaccinated, around 65 to 70%, but going down to around 10%. So we don't want our patients in this situation. We want them to get more protected than they currently can be with just two doses of vaccine. And the boosters do bring up protection against symptomatic infection, with an mRNA booster up around 60 to 75% although this will wane again. So the real question there is, what's our memory going to be like and who do we boost again? Vaccine effectiveness is slightly um, higher and younger compared to older age groups. But you know the graphic here will show us what sort of benefits boosters can give. And this is where I, I really call upon you in primary care. I know how hard everyone is trying, but just to get this message out to our parents now that the summer holidays are, are wrapping up, um, parents, adults, everyone over 18 who's eligible for a booster. And you can see it doesn't matter which booster you use in the mRNA category, uh, they both protect. But most importantly, boosting restores much higher levels of protection against hospitalisation and going to the intensive care unit and obviously potentially dying from COVID-19. So it's where we can get this booster in, and you know the interval's now been shortened to three months following the second dose, um, that we are going to make the biggest difference in coming, in coming weeks. You know, someone who uh, gets boosted today and don't get infected um, you know, in, in one to two weeks' time and don't go to our hospital is going to make a very, very big difference. So much higher levels of protection up around that 90% plus mark with you know, what might be less waning um, when we're boosted. I won't go through all these slides in detail, but very similar pattern being observed in around 14 vaccine effectiveness real world studies now across different countries um, you know, in, in, the, in the world. So from the United States, for example, here, we see three doses um, protecting less well against Omicron compared to against Delta. So 62% versus 77% for any infection, but still protecting well after that third dose. And then for severe disease into the 90s, 
um, you know, whether it's um, Omicron or, or Delta there for protection against severe disease. That's what we want. We want to turn this into a mild illness. Similarly, from a Danish cohort, um, and this is about infection here, not about severe disease, but boosting, significant boosting if you, if you, um, you know, can, can uh, get in uh, the booster in a timely way. Uh, they haven't yet got data for the mRNA vaccine. But, you know, similar findings for Qatar, Canada and others. So let's come back to talking with our parents about, or patients, I keep saying parents, I'm in a child-friendly mode today, about educating our immune system. We're giving it another round to get to know and train against the virus. The quality and the quantity of antibody in our circulation improves. Our T cell repertoire improves. And already the T cell repertoire, the T cell um, response is actually quite cross-protective. And that's been one of the things that we're thinking might contribute to the less severe diseases, that our T cell response is kicking in um, and is somewhat better maintained um, against the Omicron variant. T cells impact a lot on the severity of disease. Uh, so really um, bigger, broader, more memorable protection than you've had before. And what we're hoping to do is turn this into a, a, mild, you know, a mild illness for almost everyone. In educating this, this um, you know, our immune system, we're seeing this interesting disconnect and it's seen most clearly on the left-hand side um, in the UK, where you, and we're seeing it here in our daily numbers, to be honest, if we look at the trends over time, where you see lots of cases, but fewer hospitalisations. So this is a product of two things, of that, of that primed immune system, that highly vaccinated population, and also the fact that even in the absence of um, vaccination, when you compare it with Delta and you compare sort of people from around the same time, it does appear that Omicron is around 50% um, less likely to put you in hospital. So, you know, um, we don't want to see what we're seeing in terms of the you know, numbers of deaths and hospitalisations that we're seeing, uh, but we are moving down the path in this pandemic, which I think will we'll eventually see us uh, come to ending the pandemic itself, never ridding ourselves of COVID-19. It's here to stay, but we will uh, you know, be moving away from pandemic-like conditions, I think, sooner in a way because of where we are now. So don't be disheartened about that. Um, of course, if you're vaccinated, you know, you're more protect, you know, you're less likely to be hospitalised, you're less likely to die, you're less likely to go to ICU. Um, the evidence is there across the board. So, you know, those patients that might come and say, I heard the vaccines weren't working. Hopefully this sort of approach um, can really, you know, help you in those, what a tricky conversations. So quick recap on which booster and why. Um, 18 years plus for boosters at the moment. Um, uh, Pfizer vaccine has been recognised um, and registered by the TGA as a booster from six, from 16 years plus, just uh, just a few days ago. But recommendations on that are pending from ATAGI. They won't be far away. Um, and you, you would know that um, you know Pfizer's been used as a booster in in teens, uh, younger teens like this age group in other countries like Israel and the US already. Now, mRNA vaccines preferred as the booster. They give antibody levels that are considerably higher than the other class of vaccines, irrespective of what you got for the primary dose. And both of them are very strong as boosters. AstraZeneca only as a booster if you're contraindicated to receive an mRNA vaccine. And that would be very few people. Um, it might be, for example, a 20-year-old male who, if they were unlucky enough to get myocarditis after the second dose of an mRNA vaccine, 
um, you know, they could potentially get AstraZeneca or they could wait for a while if they're not yet due um, because, you know, there are other vaccines in the pipeline. Um, and, you know, there are some people who won't accept mRNA vaccines, I, I believe, but very few. Now, it is three months um, and we do know uh, that now also we're recommending three months after the last dose in the primary course for people who are immunocompromised. So remember, most of us, we've got two, two primary doses, get a booster, you know, um, minimum now three months later. It was six months originally, but now shortened that interval. And if you're immunocompromised, you were all recommended since about September last year to get a third dose of, as a primary series, have three doses. And then now those people post their third dose if they're severely immunocompromised are also recommended to get the booster around three months after their third dose. Okay, so um, when to boost after infection? And I've been asked this question just moments ago. Uh, look, it's a bit tricky and there's a range in the guidance to allow for um, tailoring to clinical circumstances. Basically, once someone's recovered, you can boost them without any issue at all. If they're saying, look, I'm, I'm pretty much fine now, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have my booster, go ahead. There, there's no issue there. Um, ATAGI has recently shortened the guidance to say, you know, offer that vaccine within four months, not six. We previously said you could wait up to six months. Now, one of the main reasons for that is that there were people toward the end of last year, obviously, before Omicron emerged. And we're talking, remember, Omicron emerged late November. There would have been people infected, you know, September, um, October, November, um, who had Delta infections. Even through, through December, we were still seeing Delta infections. Delta infection, like, you know, um, our earlier version to the vaccine, isn't as protective as, it, you know, we'd like it to be against Omicron. So that's why, you know, particularly if someone had infection sort of back in October, November, you know, absolutely boost them now. You know, um, don't, don't delay. If they're older, if they've got risk factors, boost them now. Um, and, you know, certainly if they haven't had their primary course completed yet, you know, don't worry about when they've had infection. Give them that extra education and layer of protection, um, you know, by, by boosting or, or completing that second dose in the primary course for their immune system. So there is some nuance. You can wait for up to four months. Um, you know, a young, healthy person who just had Omicron last week, you know, you could wait a little bit. There's no, there's no problem there. But, um, but boost those suggested here and there'll be some more guidance on that as well. Okay, how long will boosters last and when will they be needed again? Well, this is tricky. And again, the issue is our vaccines are a little bit off target here with, with Omicron. So we're seeing the waning a little bit earlier and quicker. If you look at this UK data and on the right hand side, um, just look at uh, four to six months out post dose three after the booster and look at symptomatic disease and hospitalisation. So around the 50% mark for symptomatic disease, 75% for hospitalisation. You go down and you compare that to Delta, where we were for after the booster for Delta, and it was 90, 95% against symptomatic disease. So the booster helps, but it's not quite as strong as we'd like it to be. Now, does that matter if you're only getting very mild disease and you're a young, healthy person? Quite possibly not. So the, the other trick in the when will we need to boost again is not just when, but who. Will it just be a subset of those people who are more at risk, kind of like our flu program, where we might, you know, um, vaccinate those with medical conditions across the board and older people and, 
you know, uh, so forth. No decision made yet, um, but obviously just every single weekday month people are looking at this. So advice will be indeed coming. Um, and and the, the companies, the, particularly the mRNA vaccine companies, are already, have already adjusted their vaccines to um, make a spike protein that is modelled uh, on the Omicron spike pro protein. They're looking at having that as a booster or a combination of half and half Omicron and the, an the original ancestral strain or a, a triple, you know, three-in-one vaccine with Omicron, Delta and the original. So there's, there's a whole range of possibilities and what actual vaccines we might use if we boost it again before winter Southern Hemisphere in Australia is, is going to be really interesting uh, to, to, you know, to face into. Um, what about the BA2 Omicron subvariant? You've heard about this. There's cases in Australia now, there's cases in other parts of the world. It's an offshoot of Omicron. Not every variant is an offshoot of the previous one. Omicron was not an offshoot of Delta, for example. It was way elsewhere on the, on the evolutionary tree. Um, but this variant, uh, you know, is raising a few red flags because of the potential um, for a growth advantage um, and potential for overall greater transmissibility. But it looks about as readily susceptible to vaccines based on this preliminary data from the UK uh, as, the, um, as the BA1 Omicron. So, you know, be alert but, but not alarmed. Um, and, you know, if it helps... Uh, you to know there's a lot of variants out there and they're being tracked and monitored very closely. Okay, so Novavax, you've all heard about, um, I, I don't think I can even remember the, the actual trade name now, um, but of course, this is our first protein subunit vaccine with an adjuvant in Australia. Now, when I say protein subunit, it contains a recombinant version, so, you know, made in the laboratory version of the spike protein, and that is, you know, the, the subunit that we're talking about. And then added to that is a novel adjuvant based on saponin from the bark of a tree, uh, which helps to stimulate the immune system. And then it forms into these little sort of micelles um, that are, uh, you know, that, that help to stimulate the immune system. So it's registered uh, by the TGA now in a two-dose schedule, uh, three weeks apart. It's a 0.5 ml dose given intramuscularly. Um, there's five micrograms of antigen, 50 micrograms of the matrix M adjuvant, and it's you know pretty basic and easy to store, two to eight degrees, long shelf life, um, still the multi-dose vials with 10 doses in a vial. It is only approved at the moment by the TGA for use in a primary series. And ATAGI have just issued advice on this. It's also suggesting it could be used if you're giving a, you know, a, a third dose to an immunocompromised person. Um, but it's not yet recommending Novavax as a booster, although there is a bit of booster data on there, which I'll show you a bit later. Um, good efficacy in clinical trials to the Delta and prior variants and about 90%. It looks like it's got the same sort of issues with, um, you know, with uh, decreased um, uh, you know, antibody response to, to Omicron. Uh, so nothing, no particular advantage there. Um, it's, there's no post-marketing safety data on this yet because it's only just getting registered, only just been registered in Europe, hasn't been used widely in the population, but there were no safety issues in clinical trials. So it might be, an, uh, you know, a vaccine that your patients who've been reluctant to take a, an mRNA or viral vector vaccine uh, would think about using. It is similar to as a protein vaccine to other adjuvanted protein vaccines that we use. 
Um, and the reactive genicity increases with each dose. This is actually an independent study, not the company study. Um, and here they actually looked at that third dose of Novavax. So there are a number of studies, this one and a very large UK study, looking at Novavax as a booster, but not yet registered in that way. Um, overall, fairly well tolerated, as, um, as you can see. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, we don't know exactly when the booster dose um, may or may not be registered, uh, but watch, watch this space. Uh, this is the trial I was alluding to called the COV-BOOST RCT and there were actually seven different vaccines ex examined as boosters and because this was done in the UK who've largely been using either AstraZeneca or Pfizer as their primary vaccine schedule it was really applicable to our Australian context. So they looked at half doses, they looked at mRNA, they looked at AstraZeneca, they've made all these comparisons looking at safety and antibody. And it's allowed us to have a lot of data to work with from a policy guidance um, perspective. It's certainly one of the many reasons I think that you've seen the mRNA vaccines come out strongly preferred over, um, over AstraZeneca um, because of the differences in antibody generated. Uh, administration with influenza vaccine. The answer is yes, can be given on the same day separate sites. Our company is looking at actually a pooled vaccine, yes, but don't do that at home or don't do that in your surgery. Um, what we're talking about here is, you know, co-administration in different sites. There's data from the Novavax um, RCT where they um, had uh, flu vaccine given on the same day, this uh, flu cell vac, Securus, flu ad Securus. Um, doesn't really matter which brand. The principles tell us that this shouldn't really be an issue. Interestingly, they did see slightly reduced immunogenicity and antibody titers to SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus of causing COVID, no impact on the immunogenicity uh, against the flu strains. But, you know, it, there's a trade-off there, right? So we don't really know if that reduced response to SARS-CoV-2 is at all clinically meaningful. And if you've got someone in your surgery and it's right at the peak of getting them both boosted for COVID and wanting to vaccinate against flu, it's perfectly reasonable to deliver it on the same day. Maybe slightly, um, you know, a few percentage points extra in terms of um, in terms of adverse effects. You can see there not much difference from the um, from the eyeball test. Um, and and I think the co-administration post hoc efficacy data showed similar similar efficacy. Uh, and then again, um, the com cov uh, flu trial with other vaccines has also suggested to us that there aren't big issues here. So administration with flu vaccine is permissible as it is for other vaccines. Just a word on flu very briefly. Um, flu vaccine uptake has dropped modestly and particularly it's fallen off the, off the edge in young children. So dropped down from about 50% of six months to five year olds getting uh, a flu vaccine to only around 25%. And we know now that the population hasn't seen much flu the last two years, but people are coming in. We're starting to see respiratory viruses come back. So big shout out to actually deliver flu vaccine alongside your COVID boosters and 5 to 11 program. Um, and there'll be an Atagi flu statement coming out on this um, fairly, fairly soon. And I do put up there um, a really important page. It's the Atagi clinical guidance for COVID-19. It's still separate to the handbook. But please, it's the one-stop shop, a target clinical guidance for COVID-19. Um, easy to Google and, and bookmark. 
All right, back to school um, and vaccines for children. So you all know it's a different dose in children. For five to 11 years, we've just got Pfizer registered. We're giving 10 micrograms, not 30 micrograms. The formulation's difficult, one, different rather. One's an orange cap and one's a grey cap, so don't you know mix those up. Check the age of your child. Um, we're hearing stories about, oh, dad couldn't remember how old the child was, gave the wrong birth date, or, or maybe mum, I don't want to blame the dads out there. Um, but it is important that you know the child's um, age and you're administering the right volume of 0.2 mils out of the right vial. What if you do make an error? Well, report it to your state or territory, tell the parents, just disclose, really important. And, um, but don't panic too much. Uh, there is guidance from, you know, for example, in New South Wales from 1800NSWIS, the New South Wales Immunisation Specialty Service. We largely align advice in Australia across um, what the CDC do in terms of, you know, if you gave, um, you know, too low a dose to someone who literally just turned 12 uh, a couple of days ago, don't worry, don't, don't need to repeat. And similarly, if someone, you know, turned 12, uh, after their first dose, before their second dose, it's, it, it probably is, you know, it's really okay whichever dose you give, whether you gave um, the 10 or the 30. Um, so so don't, don't worry too much, don't worry your parents too much. Um, remember that, you know, children are very responsive to the vaccine and by and large they, you know, they are, are, um, are doing well with COVID as well. So um, the interval's recommended for eight weeks. Why eight weeks? Uh, well, firstly, it's a practical thing. And secondly, it probably gives you a better immune response after the second dose. Um, we, we always knew that we weren't going to be able to get all children fully vaccinated before school started. Um, this is just allowing a bit more time for them, as many children as possible to come forward and get the first dose, because that's what we want, that, that protection for as many on board with dose one. Um, as well as a better immunogenicity post uh, the second dose with a slightly longer interval uh, from an, you know, a few studies, there's also a suggestion that it might reduce the risk of myocarditis with a slightly longer interval. Just from one study in Canada, it's softish evidence, it's not the strongest evidence, but it's a reason to think about spacing it out. Don't be concerned about myocarditis if you decide to shorten the interval. You can shorten the interval for your patients to as little as three weeks. And I'd suggest this in children who've got underlying medical conditions, or maybe there's a really important reason um, you know, about them going back to school now with someone or a bunch of people in the family with underlying medical conditions. So you can shorten the interval. It's not, you know, no one's going to uh, have any concern if it's shortened to three weeks compared with eight weeks. Um, but, you know, the, this is the, the general uh, guidance is for eight weeks. Uh, lots of benefits of child vaccination. And I've just actually this past few weeks been seeing a number of children with um, the poly, uh, um, uh, paediatric inflammatory multi-syndromes of children um, following COVID. It's a really long name or the multi-inflammatory syndrome of children, two acronyms. Um, this is a, you know, this is, occurs after COVID. It generally hospitalises children that need treatment with steroids and or IVIG. They can have actually myocarditis in this post-COVID inflammatory syndrome. So it's definitely a reason to vaccinate children. Even though overall their hospitalisation rate is lower, overall they're experiencing milder disease, Perfectly healthy children can have complications and we've seen, you know, bacteremias and other things in perfectly healthy children because that can happen after you get a respiratory virus of any type. Better for children to go to school, less family disruption, many, many reasons to vaccinate children, um, including the impact on, on their well-being overall of COVID-19. And modelling does suggest it can make a bit of a difference. 
uh, when the CDC did a, this comparison chart on the left-hand side and they said, well, look, how many deaths from vaccine-preventable, other vaccine-preventable diseases were there in the year or two before vaccines for those diseases were introduced? And look at the numbers, you know, um, eight for meningococcal disease, 16 for varicella, um, 20 for rotavirus. This is in the United States. 66 deaths from COVID-19. So when, whenever we say mild, we've got to temper that with the fact that it's still significant um, in terms of its impact and, you know, not worry parents, but give them, you know, the, the, the confidence to go forward with vaccine. Um, it, of course, COVID, you know, disproportionately disrupts those who are most vulnerable, like children with disabilities, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children. These are the hardest to reach families and kids sometimes, but really the, every effort you can make in primary care, working with your community, um, I just commend to you how important this is and what a difference it makes. So please um, look at that graph on the right-hand side. It's a, a meta-analysis, you know, a, a very good study rather, not a meta-analysis, but a very good study of risk factors for kids and, and really um, talk to parents. If they're concerned that their child has medical risk factors, that's all the more reason to be vaccinated not to be concerned about vaccine side effects. Uh, and check out our website, osvacsafety.org.au because here's the real world data, more than 20,000 parents now reporting how their child experienced um, COVID, either with the child there, filling in the survey or on their behalf. Um, the rates of um, you know, expected adverse events here are very much what we, uh, what we saw in clinical trials. They're actually lower. Uh, than for the teenagers, um, who knew primary school kids, you know, complain less. But, um, you know, only about, you know, less than three out of ten um, saying they had any symptoms, missing out on their usual activities, very few kids. Uh, so really highly well tolerated. Uh, and you can see here there's all the data by comparison on Pfizer and all the other age groups, including for the booster. So if you pull this website up in your surgery, you can actually show patients who are just saying, look, I'm not sure how I'm going to go. You know, you can show them these graphs sometimes. Um, for some patients, it does help. Um, what about myocarditis in this age group? Because you know it's something to look out for, particularly in teenage males. Well, the rates of myocarditis from any cause, any cause, are really lowest in primary school age children. So we've always felt pretty comfortable that that with the lower dose of the vaccine, we wouldn't see much myocarditis. And that's the case. Now, um, in the US where they're well, you know, well ahead of us, I think they've many, you know, vaccinated already over 10 million five to 11 year old children. Um, they're seeing very few cases of myocarditis. They've seen a couple that look pretty typical, um, that chest pain within the first um, day or so after the second dose. But something of the rate of about two cases per million vaccines um, delivered. So very, very rare. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got Pfizer at the moment, um, we've got Moderna. The reporting rates for myocarditis are up on the TGA website. I'd really commend their weekly statement to you. You, you should be aware, I'm sure you are, that um, Moderna causes a slightly higher rate of myocarditis than Pfizer. If you've got people still thinking about that, there's a, a differential there, but it's still rare. Um, okay, so learning in key is school. Uh, learning in school is key. And really, with all of the multi-layered strategies that we've got, schools are very, very safe. I would put it to you that it's everything that goes on around schools that actually represents um, more of a risk for COVID. And what, what, I'm, what I mean by that is we know that typically if we went to school, you'd be then having sleepovers and parties and families getting together and playing in the park. 
And they're the things that I know our chief health officers have said, let's try to reduce those while kids get back to school. In the schools, there's masking, there's cohorting, ventilation, you know, reducing class contacts and sizes, a whole range of measures, as well as, of course, vaccines. And we know vaccines have already reduced the rate of spread of COVID-19 in schools. We've got evidence of, from that that will be published very soon from the National Centre um, in New South Wales from last year. But of course, we've got a lot of Omicron going on in the background now. We also have evidence from across different parts of the world that schools per se don't make community outbreaks worse. But we know that we want everybody in the community to get the booster shot, to get vaccinated, teachers to get the booster, staff to get the booster, to keep any rates of COVID as low as possible, because then you'll have less incursions into school. So keeping schools closed just harms children. It won't slow the pandemic um, from, you know, or, or end the pandemic. Um, and it's really important to keep kids, get kids back to school. You know, you could bring the second dose forward for the five to 11 year olds uh, that we talked about for the medically at risk, if you wish. Um, but really I'd try to give parents a lot of confidence in this regard. What are they doing um, across the state in terms of back to school plans with rapid antigen tests? Well, it's quite, it's, it's similar, but it's a little bit variable. So let's talk about rapid antigen tests because, you know, they've obviously been in high demand. They're very useful to have. They do have slightly reduced sensitivity and specificity. The performance of the test is quite dependent upon the brand. So, you know, be sure to check on the TGA website about that. And importantly, try to educate your pa patients that, you know, this is something to do if your child's got symptoms and you don't want to, you know, necessarily want line up for a PCR test. Um, there are some states that are using them as, and giving them to, you know, families to have as bi-weekly screening. So New South Wales and Victoria, but that's not mandated. It's an optional thing that parents can do um, that to test their children, say the evening before school, um, know that they're negative when they go to bed, they wake up, they feel great the next morning, they're off to the school um, and the parents feel comfortable and you know that, that can help understand where the virus is or isn't. Um, Victoria's also you know, talking about a test to stay strategy, which is close contacts can be tested. If they've been close contacts, test them you know, to make sure they're not going to school with COVID that's asymptomatic. There are different ways to use the test. The most important thing is to just try to you know, teach parents and to be comfortable with them. Not all parents will use them. Um, you know, they might save them up until people have got symptoms. That's okay too. Uh, studies in the US and the UK have shown that maybe only around a third of families will use these tests regularly as part of their, um, as part of their strategy, but they're very handy to have. One of the biggest questions I'm often asked is like, or, or people seem to do, is they get, they might have a known exposure you know, like last night at a party, and then today they want to use the rat, and the rat's negative, and they feel they feel great, they feel bulletproof, and off they go. I think what we have to train our patients about is that there is an incubation period, and if you you know if you've been sort of living in a bubble, then you get an exposure at a party the night before, you're not likely to be positive the next day. You have to wait a couple of days for the virus to kick up and and do its thing if you did get infected and show up on a test. So really save that rat till about day, you know, three, three to four, five. If you've got symptoms, sure test, but you know, don't necessarily feel that you've got to run out and buy, um, you know, a rat and, and then just use it on the first day and forget about it. Uh, it's not really the way the virus works. Uh, very quickly in the last few minutes, um, there's new antivirals, of course, um, that have just been approved. Uh, 
a short while ago, um, molnupiravir and nermatrevlevir, I can't even say that, and ritonavir, um, also known as Paxlovid, which is easier to say. But of course, these inhibit the replication of the virus. Um, we've had remdesivir, but it's only given intravenously. Now, um, these are oral antivirals with a prescription for those at highest risk of COVID. And we're waiting on Australian clinical guidance as to, um, you know, for primary care and others as to how to use these vaccines and which patients in which context. Um, there are many courses that have been offered, um, but I think it is important that we we uh, use these in our armamentarium. As you can see, there'll be breakthrough infections no matter how well vaccinated you are. And those most at risk, um, you know, warrant the most wraparound strategies to, to try and prevent disease. Um, Canada's already included Paxlovid in their, um, in their guidance. You might be interested to see what they say about it um, and the strength of the evidence behind it. But certainly this, um, you know, can be an effective adjuvant or adjunct rather, um, and our National COVID Clinical Evidence Task Force, I'm sure, will be issuing guidelines uh, very soon as they have done for many other strategies. Uh, monitoring COVID patients at home, there's again a lot of guidance on the individual state and territory websites. It's always good to keep it simple. And I think much of what you know about any other viral respiratory illness really does apply here. Um, most of this is really common sense stuff about whether people are having difficulty breathing, whether they're keeping up their fluids, whether they've got high temperature, um, whether they're experiencing any other unusual symptoms. So, um, you know, whether it's the UK, Victoria, or any of our other states and territories, I'm sure you're, you're following that guidance. Um, there are a number of key resources. I'm giving you the vaccine-specific ones here, just to be sure you can go to that one-stop shop page, which is always nice. Um, and really, I think also our frequently asked questions help a lot. And uh, this is on the National Centre's website. So if you do um, have any additional questions that you'd like to see here, um, please reach out to us through the website. And um, or, you know, as advice changes rapidly, we, we try to update these all of the time and are definitely looking to help you in your clinical practice. Um, as you do all of the many, many important things you do. Um, I'd just like to shout out and say a huge thank you to everyone in primary care. Um, what you're doing is remarkable. I know that people are getting fatigued and, and potentially tired at this stage of the pandemic. Look after yourselves though, because you're absolutely the most wonderful and critical workforce. And thank you for everything that you do and the opportunity to talk to you today. Bye-bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.